everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Georgia. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Thirty-eight-year-old Christy Cornwell was an independent badass who loved with all her heart, chased her dreams, and took no shit. According to an interview her parents did with the Today Show, Christy was a former probation officer who worked at a prison and had a degree in criminal justice. On top of that, she was a self-defense trainer, took firearms classes, and enjoyed rides on her motorcycle. Like I said, she was a one-woman powerhouse, and in 2009, she decided that she was going to take her life down a new path. She was recently divorced, and with her son being a teenager, had some time to try something new. She started classes for medical laboratory technology, and the world was her oyster. Christy didn't become the empowered woman she did without the love and support of her family. They were extremely close. She and her brother were especially close, like best friends close and she visited her parents regularly. That's actually where she was in August of 2009. In August of 2009, with her divorce behind her and a whole summer to plan her future, Christy headed to her parents' house to spend some time with them in Blairsville, Georgia. They lived in this cute little house off of Jones Creek Road, which is as old country road as country roads get. It's surrounded by fields and trees, and at the very end, right before you get to the highway, you can stop by Red's Country Store and Kitchen. So basically, it's the road that every country singer grew up on. Christy was a walker. She liked to take long walks, but it was Georgia in the dead of summer, and the humidity was the kind of high that you can only imagine. So Christy took to taking her walks at night when the weather decided to give humanity a break. On the night of August 11, 2009, Christy's brother says that she left her parents' house at around 9 p.m. She had started dating a new man in the previous months, so she got on the phone and started her walk down that long country road. According to an interview with the Today Show, Christy talked to her boyfriend for a few minutes until she told him that she needed to let a vehicle pass. But the vehicle didn't pass. Instead, the conversation with her boyfriend turned into him getting a real-time audio of her abduction as she yelled, please don't take me. And then there was nothing. In a full panic, ABC News reports that her boyfriend called her mom to let her know what happened. So she called 911 and the two of them headed out to find Christy but all they found were some of her personal belongings. The Daily Beast reports that it was her glasses and her shoes. That's the only report I saw that said exactly what they found at the abduction site, but if it's correct, Christy fought like hell, like a self-defense trainer would, to the point where she lost her shoes. Within a single day, not only were the local police, but the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, were on Christy's case. They told ABC News that they believe she'd been abducted, was in danger, and to be on the lookout for a white SUV or gold or tan subcompact car. Apparently, witnesses had seen a car matching that description in the area around the time of Christie's abduction. And according to Knox News, no one in the immediate vicinity owned a car that matched that description. This happened at 9 p.m. in the middle of a town where you go to get away from the world not a place you just happened to find yourself in. So the vehicle description was important, and it was really all they had to go on. 
Immediately, law enforcement organized a massive all-hands-on-deck investigation. Someone who's capable of grabbing people right off of the street is an immediate threat to everyone. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that they interviewed more than 200 sex offenders in the surrounding area, which included three different states. Blairsville is right near the North Carolina and Tennessee borders and is right off of a major highway, so they made sure to cover all bases. Police did intensive searches on the ground and from air, but came up empty. And while the police came up empty, not everyone did. According to the Cherokee Scout, three days after Christie was abducted, a man mowing the grass on the shoulder of State Route 325 found a cell phone. It was Christie's. This sounds devastating, and it was for many reasons, but it also finally gave police something to work with. Based on the location of her cell phone, they knew it had most likely been thrown out of a moving vehicle and one that was moving north towards North Carolina. There was also some hope that maybe whoever threw it had left behind some fingerprints, but if police did find any, they haven't told the public. Christie's family was beyond determined to find her and made as much noise as they possibly could. They were loud on Facebook and they were loud in the community. They were going to make sure that there wasn't a single person in the area that didn't know Christy was missing, and by day six of her disappearance, they caught the attention of the Today Show. Christy's family went on the Today Show and told them that the police didn't know if her abduction was random or targeted. She had worked as a probation officer, so there was some concern there, but if her abduction was random, then it could have been anyone. And if it was anyone, then the motive could have been anything. If police can narrow down a motive, they can use it to backtrack towards who the abductor is. But when a crime is committed at random, it makes the offender exponentially harder to track down. With that, the GBI told the show, We don't have a solid lead right now on who might have done this. We don't have any target suspects at this point. When the Today Show asked Christy's mom what she would say to her daughter if she was watching, she said, I would tell Christy that we're praying, and she's praying I know. She's a woman of faith, and we are too. To hang in there, and her chance to be free will come. She will be able to get away. The searches for Christy continued, spanning several different agencies and more than 100 trained professionals. But after 11 days, the Chattanooga Free Press reported that ground searches were called off. They'd covered as much ground as they felt could be helpful at that point and doubled down on their investigation behind the scenes. While police were doing that, Christie's case was featured on America's Most Wanted. And just like that, a tip came in. But it was grim. According to WCNC, the tip stated that Christie's body would be found off of Baltic Road in this rural little neighborhood in Kings Mountain, North Carolina. For reference, that's 208 miles from where she was abducted. The outlet reports that the U.S. Marshals in Cleveland County Search and Rescue went out there, but they didn't find Christie. They didn't find anything at all. Either someone had told someone else that her body would be found there and they felt compelled to call it in, or this was a cruel joke. 
And if you ever find yourself so bored and miserable with your existence that you feel the need to call in a fake tip about where a terrified family can find the body of someone they love, do literally anything else. Clip your fingernails, start a Beanie Baby collection, find a therapist. Literally anything else would be more appropriate. For months, the GBI followed every single tip that came in, and volunteers came out of the center of the earth to try and find Christy, but everything was a dead end, and her family was running out of money. So what did they do? According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, they did not pass go, they did not collect $200, no. They auctioned off their entire lake house for $390,000, built a heliport on their property to make aerial searches easier, sent out 80,000 postcards with Christie's information on it, took out ads in the newspaper, and offered a $50,000 reward. When I tell you that this family stopped at nothing to find Christie, I mean that they stopped at absolutely nothing. In fact, the outlet reports that Christie's brother actually quit his job as an engineer so that he could spend 80 hours a week searching for her, including using his own little plane to search from the air. If you're thinking that you need to call your brothers and let them know that you expect this level of dedication if anything happens to you, you're not alone. In December of 2009, four months after Christie disappeared, and all of this new press about the links her family was going to to find her, a woman caught wind of what had happened and went to police to let them know that something similar had happened to her just nine days prior to Christie being abducted. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the woman told police that on August 2nd, she was walking near the Ranger Community Center in Cherokee, North Carolina, when a vehicle pulled up behind her and knocked her to the ground. Once on the ground, she said that a man approached her, but when he saw another vehicle coming, he got scared off. The outlet reports that she had minor injuries from the incident and reported it to the North Carolina State Highway Patrol, but according to the GBI, the police never filed the report. They don't know why, but told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that the lack of report may have stalled their investigation. A spokesperson for the North Carolina State Highway Patrol told the outlet that the entire thing was under investigation, but that their preliminary findings showed that the officer didn't file the report because he couldn't confirm if it was a hit and run. I mean, someone was hit and someone ran, but even if it couldn't be confirmed, someone called the police. There are police reports for people calling in about neighbors' dogs. Certainly, someone claiming to be hit by a car and approached by the man inside of it would warrant a police report. But what do I know? Regardless of this possible stall in the investigation, ABC News reported that law enforcement thought there might be a possible link between the two cases. They both happened around 9 p.m. within 25 miles of each other. They both happened on residential streets. And the vehicle description from the area when Christie was abducted matched the vehicle description that the second potential victim gave, a silver late-model Nissan Xterra with tinted windows and a brush guard on the front. She was able to help police draw up a sketch and determine that the man who tried to abduct her was likely a white male in his mid-to-late 20s with dark hair. With this second woman's encounter out to the media, a third woman actually came forward. 
According to the Cherokee Scout, this woman told police that prior to Christie's abduction, she was having car troubles just north of Morgan County, Georgia, so she pulled over to the side of the road. While she was trying to remove her car battery, she said that a man came up from behind and grabbed her. Thankfully, she said she was able to fight him off and get away in her car. Now, this outlet says that she got away without seeing the man who grabbed her, but also said that the man in the Ranger abduction sketch looked like her attacker. I'm fully aware that that makes things a little unclear, but it is what it is. With the sketch in hand and the more precise vehicle description, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that authorities searched five counties in Georgia, seven counties in western North Carolina, and even more in Tennessee. They identified more than 500 Nissan Xterras in North Carolina that matched the description, but despite their effort, they still couldn't find Christie. A month and a half went by with no new information until reports of an anonymous letter hit the news. The letter came to the Cherokee Police Department from a concerned grandmother who thought her grandson might be the one trying to abduct all these women. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, concerned grandma wrote that her 27-year-old grandson who had stayed with her in western North Carolina between August 1st and August 12th looked like the man in the sketch and had a Nissan Xterra with black bars on the front. To boot, she said that her grandson would leave her house every afternoon for four to five hours at a time and come home between 11 p.m. and midnight. However, on the night of the 11th, she said that he didn't come home until 7 a.m. on the 12th, and when he did, he had scratches on the side of his face and neck. When concerned grandma asked him what had happened, he chalked it up to a fight and said that he was ready to head back home to Florida. She says that he left that day but didn't actually make it back home until three days later on the 15th. She ended her letter with, I've tried to ignore the chain of coincidences surrounding my grandson's 12-day stay with me, but can barely eat or sleep. My suspicions are only strengthened after discovering similar articles in areas near his Florida residence. Both the GBI and Christie's family publicly pleaded and responded to concerned grandma's letter, asking for her to come forward with the identity of her grandson, but as far as I could find, she never did. Christie's case went quiet for another three months before all shit hell broke loose. And I mean the kind of shit hell that cannot be summed up into words, but we're going to try. Buckle up, because it's about to go down. On May 12th, Eleven Alive broke the news that there was finally a possible suspect in Christie's abduction, 42-year-old James Scott Carringer. There was one problem, though. He was dead. He had just committed suicide after being involved in an hours-long standoff with police off of Peachtree in Atlanta. And the standoff had nothing to do with Christie. No, it's much darker and much twistier than that. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, a month earlier, on April 8th of 2010, police had gotten a call about a suspicious vehicle at around 5.30 in the morning. It was a black Xterra. I know we've been talking about a silver one until now, but bear with me. 
It turns out that there was a bolo out for that black Xterra and for Carringer after WFSA reports that just two days prior, a 19-year-old relative of his reported that he had abducted her from the parking lot of a Dick's Sporting Goods store in Gilmer, South Carolina. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that after he abducted her, he drove down a dirt logging-type road, raped her, and then dropped her back off. When she got back, she drove herself to the hospital, reported the rape, and the warrant and the bolo was issued. Now that we know what the police were working with when they got the suspicious vehicle call, we can talk about what happened next. When police tried to approach Carringer in his black Xterra, the outlet reports that he told them that he was suicidal and that he had explosives in the vehicle. Naturally, everyone backed off and set up a perimeter. 20 minutes after responding to the call, they heard a gun go off. Police couldn't just assume that Carringer had shot himself because it could have been a ruse to get them closer to the vehicle and set off the explosives. So they waited until they could get an officer in a bomb suit and an explosives robot out there to get closer to the vehicle. Just before 8 a.m., the outlet reports that the police were able to safely gain access to the vehicle and found Carringer dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. No explosives were found. The GBI stated that in assisting with the investigation into the rape and abduction of his relative, they found information that led them to pursue Carringer's possible involvement in Christy Cornwell's abduction. According to the Gainesville Times, Carringer had not one, but two Nissan Xterras. One was black and one was silver. In addition to that, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that the brush guard that was once on his vehicle was removed soon after Christie went missing. The news of that standoff made its way down to Montgomery, Alabama, who had been looking for a black Xterra after it had tried to abduct a 10-year-old girl just two days prior to the alleged rape and abduction of Carringer's 19-year-old relative. I told you guys, this was about to get wild. The reports on this abduction took a little more digging to find, but according to WFSA, on Easter Sunday, just four days before Carringer shot himself in that standoff, a six-year-old boy and his 10-year-old sister walked out of their worship service to go outside and hide Easter eggs in the parking lot of their church. This church is right off of Birmingham Highway, and I'm talking you maybe drive 20 feet off of the highway to get into the parking lot. Church surveillance footage showed a black Xterra drive past the church where the two kids were and then circle back and into the parking lot. And this circling back was a full commitment. He would have had to have gotten off of the current direction of the highway, go in the opposite direction, past the church, and then get off and back onto the highway to get into that church parking lot. Once in the parking lot, CCTV shows that the man in the Xterra asked the kids to come over and started talking to the little boy, but the talking didn't last long. Out of nowhere, the man in the Xterra shoved the six-year-old boy to the ground and then grabbed his 10-year-old sister, pushed her into the vehicle, and drove off. Thankfully, WFSA reports that the little girl was able to get the back door open and jump out of the back seat as he was driving out of the parking lot. But had he made it out of there, he would have been right on the highway and no one knows where he might have taken her. According to the outlet, police suspect that the man responsible for the failed church abduction is Carringer. His wife told the outlet that he would leave the house for two to three days at a time. All of this seemed to come full circle and come out of nowhere all at the same time. 
For the first time, there was a suspect, what CBS News referred to as the primary suspect, but he was dead. And according to the Daily Mail, while there was a series of circumstances that pointed to him being involved in Christie's disappearance, law enforcement also said that they didn't have any direct evidence. The GBI told the Gainesville Times, I don't want us to get tunnel vision and just focus on this one person, that they were being cautious and asked that people with tips keep an open mind. Christie's family told the outlet, we've had our hopes up before and things didn't pan out. I'm not going to get too excited about this until we see something more concrete. Right now, it's just another lead like all the others. If he did have something to do with it, then it would be frustrating, but I'm not giving up hope. Nobody's coming up with proof she's not alive, so that's where I'm going to keep my hopes. Hearing about James Scott Carringer, I did a little digging to try and see what kind of person he was. And for all intents and purposes, he seemed to live an exceedingly normal life until he didn't. So I tried to figure out what might have happened in his life that flipped his monster switch. He had previously been an appraiser and based on his address history, lived in a beautiful house with his wife and two kids. I found a marriage record that said before 1999 and a divorce record for August of 2000. Four months prior to his divorce, I found charges for domestic criminal trespassing, communicating threats, harassing phone calls, and profane harassing or threatening language over the phone. There was also a charge for violation of a court order. This looks like it was the start of James's downfall. He eventually remarried, but it doesn't look like that helped anything. The Gainesville Times reports that his appraiser's license was revoked in 2003, and in 2008, he lost his sister. Now, I tried forever to try and figure out how his sister died, and in the depths of a forum was a summary of a blog post that had featured an article written by Amy Lee Womack of the Macon Telegraph. And there it was. According to that article, in June of 2008, a little more than a year before Christie was abducted, the family was staying at a resort motel for a family reunion, and his sister was sharing a room with her two sons, five and six, and a teenage family member. One night during their stay, the teenager was woken up by the screams of the five and six-year-old boys. According to the article, James's sister was on top of them, stabbing them. At that point, his sister's father, who was in the adjoining room, came in and saw what was going on, but before he could get her off of the boys, she started stabbing herself in the neck. He was able to drag her out of the motel room and lock the door behind him. The Macon Telegraph reported that the boys were able to get surgery and both recovered, but Carringer's sister passed away from her injuries outside of that motel room door. I'm not even sure what to say about all of that, other than Criminal Minds would have definitely included that in their profile. In doing some further digging, I found a hunting permit that was pulled out in Carringer's name on August 9th of 2009. That was just days after the failed ranger abduction and just days before Christie was abducted. To be fair, it looks like another hunting license was taken out almost two years to the day that he got the first one. So either it was on auto renew or his report got crossed with someone with the same name, but it was never renewed again after that. 
For eight more months, Christie's family continued searching for her, her brother working closely with the GBI who had been able to get access to Carringer's phone records after he died. According to CBS News, the GBI, while continuing their own investigation, would give her brother areas to search based on leads, and on New Year's Day of 2011, one of those leads led to Christie. The GBI had told Christie's brother about a two-mile radius of where Carringer's phone was at 9.30 p.m. on the night of Christie's abduction. He headed straight there, and after hours of searching, the Daily Mail reports that Christie's brother found her charred skeletal remains hidden under some leaves in a rural area just nine miles from where she was taken. Because her body was so badly burned, CBS News reports that they weren't able to determine a cause of death. This was a devastating time for Christie's family, but they were finally able to lay her to rest. Her mom told NBC, We didn't want it to end this way, but that's the way it is, and we can bring her home now. I know in my heart she's in heaven and we'll see her again, so that's what's going to make me be able to go on. Christie's case is one that has never seemed to have full closure. There has only ever been one suspect, but because of his death, the investigation into his guilt was limited. None of his behavior makes any sense, and his potential victim pool included grown women, teenage relatives, and children. According to the latest reports I could find, Christie's investigation is still open. Law enforcement would still like to hear from concerned grandma, and they still want the public to report any tips that they think might be pertinent to her case. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Christy Cornwell, please contact the GBI at 1-800-597-TIPS. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Christy's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.